We're going to be looking at Acts uh, 2, verses 1 through 13. Let me give you historical context and then say something uh, kind of about how to read this passage. Last week we read Acts 1 through 8. Jesus' final words, He's lived, He's died, He's risen again. His final words to His disciples are, You will receive power. This is Acts 1.8. You don't have this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's a geographical, there's movement there. Um, Acts 2.1-13 is the fulfillment of that promise. So the rest of Acts 1, they're waiting around. They actually have to find, they have to, um, find another apostle to replace Judas. Um, that's what happens in intervening passages. Acts 2 is it. Acts 2 is the fulfillment of the promise that God makes in His final words to the disciples. And before we read it, if you all are familiar with this passage, um, it's a passage about which there are a lot of questions. And I'm not going to answer them all. In fact, I might force you to ask more questions and I'm not going to make everybody happy. I'm going to try to give you a couple of salient points about it. I think the points that are to be emphasized in this passage. But I want to make this point, and this is a helpful tool for reading Scripture. I don't want y'all, I mean, I hope y'all get better at reading the Bible um, as we kind of look at it. And this is the tool. There's some things in the Bible, these are big words, but I'm going to explain them, that are descriptive. And there's some things in the Bible that are prescriptive. And what I mean by that is there are stories in the Bible where a picture or a story or a person or an event or an encounter is described. And so we learn from it and we read it and it's an amazing story. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our experience has to be the experience of that story. It's merely described. There are principles to be gained from it. But it's not prescribed. Because prescriptive, on the other hand, are there are passages in Scripture that are prescriptive and that they tell us this is to be the experience of the believer. This is to be the experience of God's people. This is a prescribed experience for all of God's people. We learn from both of those passages in different ways, but we have to be mindful of the fact that sometimes in Scripture there are stories that are not normative for the Christian life, but at the same time are very important for the Christian life. And on the other hand, there are stories and passages in Scripture that are normative for the Christian life that say this is the way it's supposed to go. This is what's to happen in your life. And what can happen with this passage is there's two errors people kind of bounce back and forth between. Some people make too much of the Pentecost episode. They read this, and they read it, and they say, this is supposed to be the experience of every believer. It's not even the experience of every believer in the Bible, so that's obviously not true. But it gets read, and we overemphasize it, and we read something that's described here and say, well, it's described, but I actually think this is prescribed for every believer. But we don't do, you have to distinguish, again, how do you figure out if it's prescriptive or descriptive? Because there are other episodes in the Bible that we don't expect replication of. For instance, in the Old Testament, God's people are hungry and he provides food from the sky. God's people are thirsty, he provides water from a rock, right? In the New Testament, we only examine, we only see a couple of people having this kind of powerful encounter of speaking tongues. We don't want to deny it, it happens. In the Old Testament, all of God's people eat food from the sky. So if you're going to decide which one should be, maybe God's people should experience, you can actually make a better case we should be eating food from the sky than we should be speaking in tongues. See what I'm saying? I just want to get you kind of struggling with that dichotomy there. But the, on the other hand, we can also make too little 
of Pentecost. We can be so weirded out by it that we're like, let's kind of put it in our little dark corner. This isn't something that makes us uncomfortable because these people have these amazing experiences, and I don't have amazing experiences. And so we don't know how to handle it, and we kind of set it to the side. But Jesus obviously thinks Pentecost is a big deal because Jesus' final words are about Pentecost. Son of God lived, died, rose again from the dead, spends 40 days preparing his apostles to start the church, his waning moments. Here's the last thing I need to say to you. Let's talk about Pentecost. So it's a big deal. I'm going to read from Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. We're going to try to not make too much of it, not make too little of it. And uh, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will teach us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others said, they are filled with new wine. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that your word is powerful when we don't feel like it is. I thank you that you're powerful when we don't feel like we are. And I pray that your power would be with us tonight, your Holy Spirit would attend to your word, and that you would soften our hearts and teach us. In your name we pray, amen. Um, as you get to know me, I'm a movie guy. I'm actually more of a TV guy now. Um, but a lot, Elizabeth and I watch a lot of movies. We watch a lot of TV. We've been watching Mad Men recently. I'm not sure I recommend it. It's kind of sad. But it's kind of incredible drama at the same time. Um, but one of my favorite characters I've seen in the movies in the last couple of years was uh, the character of Frank Ginsburg in Little Miss Sunshine. Um, <laughs> This is Steve Carell's best character. Michael Scott's a good character. But I think Frank Ginsburg in Little Miss Sunshine is incredible. Steve Carell is playing this character. When you meet him, he's on suicide watch. And he's on suicide watch because he had two goals in life. He wanted to be the world's most recognized and accomplished Marcel Proust scholar. If you, know, if you don't know who Marcel Proust is, then you're like me. I don't know who that is. Some French author. Um, but he wanted to be the world's most accomplished and acknowledged Marcel Proust scholar, and he wanted love. And, uh, and kind of the dark comedic way that Little Miss Sunshine operates, he loses both of those things to one person. So this one guy steals both his love and his recognition and his honors being a Marcel Proust uh, scholar. And his life falls apart. And he decides it's no longer worth living. And I bring that up, it's kind of a darkly comic picture of how easily our dreams and our hopes and our kind of little kingdoms that we're all trying to build, how easily they can come crashing down. 
Because we've all had this experience where everything's going right, and then it all comes crashing down, and it's out of our hands. We were powerless to keep it from crashing down. Everything's, you're, it's working out, all your hopes and dreams are coming true, and then events, whatever it is, could be you, could be someone else, came in, and all of a sudden, everything falls apart. Do you find that at time, like life just keeps coming at you and you feel powerless to shape it and change it and get what you want out of it? And we're all trying to, we're all trying to squeeze out our own little dreams and our own little hopes. We all walked in here, we all walked on campus with this expectation of how we wanted to make college go for us. It's not going to work out the way we intended for most of us. And the reality is we have very little power to actually make life work the way we want it to work. And in this story, what we're actually getting is a picture of how God gives power. Because these people will live for years deeply empowered for a cause they deeply believe in, and they'll die for it. It's the opposite of our kind of individual like ADD distraction-driven kingdoms that we're building, where one thing falls apart, so we figure out something else. We can kind of build for a while until it falls apart. These men are driven. They have power. They're pursuing a kingdom. And they actually die for it. And you see, apart from Christ, you've got to see with me that the little kingdoms we're all trying to build, our little dream lives we're all trying to build, the good life, there's no real transcendent value in them. All we're trying to do is ease the pain of living until we die. I mean, you want to get married? Marriage is a good thing in the right context received as a gift from God. Do you want to get married? And Do you think life's going to come together when you get married? If you, expect, here's, if you expect your spouse to make you happy, you're going to hate her or him. Do you want to get money? you want to get financially comfortable? If you expect that to bring peace in your life, you'll actually end up hating the very thing you're seeking. Do you want to get the perfect body? You know who the people are that hate their bodies the most? The people who are completely controlled by that and actually have the bodies we all wish we had. Right? Do you want to get accepted? It'll work for a while. But then you just end up getting controlled by everybody's opinions about you. And you actually end up hating your acceptance. And on a long enough timeline, all those things can't hold the weight of what we want from them. We want a life worth living, and those things, in their proper context, as gifts from God, can be good, but we're asking them, these things, we're saying, please make life worthwhile. And it works for a little bit, but on a long enough timeline, they all fail. Because guess what? All of your marriages will fail. Every single marriage in this room, I've said this before, is going to end in divorce or death. Are you preparing for that? I hope it's not your salvation. All of your fortunes will fail. All of your acceptance will fail. All of your bodies will fail. Is what you're pursuing, are you investing in something that's going to fail? I mean, this is not Christian theology. This is something anybody will tell you. Here in the story, we see God give his people power for building something that lasts. An energy and a motivation to live for something other than, theirself, other than themselves. And it makes all of life worthwhile. Now to get into it, into the text, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand a little bit about what Pentecost is. And if you're like me, 
You might have thought for a long time that this was the first Pentecost. This is actually not the first Pentecost. This is not when it's invented. Pentecost is actually a holiday that at this point in Scripture in Acts 2 is over a thousand years old. They've been celebrating it for over a thousand years at this point. This is not the first Pentecost. It starts actually in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12, God talks to Moses. Moses writes out the description, actually the prescription for a certain festival that Israel is supposed to have. And it's called the Feast of Weeks. It's Pentecost. Fifty days from when the harvest begins, it ends. The word Pentecost is where we get the word 50. It's the Latin for 50. Fifty days from the beginning of the harvest to the end, when the harvest ends 50 days later, they celebrate. That's Pentecost. It's a celebration that God's people would come together in Israel and thank God for provision. They're an agrarian society. Everything rises and falls on the harvest. The famine means failure of the whole civilization and humanity. So this is a big deal for their harvest. That's what Pentecost is. And actually in Leviticus 16, actually in Leviticus 23, they're told, they're actually given a description of what the Pentecost festival looks like. It's a festival. And they come together, and they're told to come with their sons and their daughters, their male servants and their female servants. Nobody's supposed to work. It's supposed to be all party. They come with the priests, the Levites, the sojourners, visitors from other lands, the fatherless, and the widows. And they celebrate the fact that God provided again. But isn't it interesting that even when it started thousands of years earlier, it has this ever-widening scope where all these other people begin to get incorporated into the celebration. But Pentecost is actually not just the festival they would have in celebration of the harvest. It also came to be associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because 50 days after the Passover feast is also Pentecost. It's when, the church, when Israel came to celebrate the giving of the law. If you're not familiar with that, the Passover event is in the Old Testament. Egypt enslaves God's people, all of Israel. And the Passover event is when God saves them from Egypt, delivered the whole nation. And 50 days after that, after he delivered them, he gave them the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the events. When God gives them the Ten Commandments, he's giving them the constitution for a new people. What's happening when they're celebrating Pentecost is they're remembering, God provided us harvest after harvest after harvest. But they're actually also remembering, God gave us a constitution What that means is God reconstituted his people after they had fallen into slavery. This is a big holiday for an Israelite. It's been going on for a while. This isn't the first Pentecost. And it was a feast in which God's people partied with all kinds of people. And they gave thanks that God provided to them in harvest. They they rejoiced over saving work and the reconstitution of the people of God by his act of giving them the law. And the law is the perfect picture of flourishing humanity. So then the question arises from the text, what do we do with this Pentecost, right? With people speaking in tongues and all that kind of thing. First, you have to see that what Pentecost is about, obviously from Jesus in 1.8, but obviously this episode, it's about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what's happening in this Pentecost episode is the same thing that's been happening in Pentecost for thousands of years, only to a fuller and richer and better extent. To a large degree, Israel never really understood what God gave them. 
when he gave them Pentecost, when he gave them all these weird laws in the Old Testament, they never got it. They never got Genesis 12, where God gives them this promise. He actually gives it to Abram. This is God starting Israel, starting his plan of salvation, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to turn you into a great nation, which will become Israel, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. And that was always his plan, and they always thought, Israel kind of looked at it and never understood what God intended to do through them. You read the Old Testament, it's just Israel failing every time, over and over and over again. What's happening right here is God's coming again to work among His people. The wind and the fire, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the house they were sitting, uh, they were sitting in. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. In the Old Testament, almost every time God shows up, it's either in wind or in fire. This is Old Testament imagery he's evoking here. Any Israelite would have seen this encounter, read about this encounter, and said, oh, that's God being present among his people. The tongues of fire, they're not, they're not random. They're God's chosen mechanism to demonstrate very clearly in a very visible way. I am with these men and what they're about to do. They're my servants. And they're carried along by my Spirit. And to understand Pentecost, we have to understand the Holy Spirit. And that's a big topic. We're going to talk about it briefly. What is it that the Holy Spirit does in this passage? It carries them along and they speak in tongues. And then we're told actually what they talk about. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Pentecost was God taking the work of Christ at the cross, the mighty work of God there, and making it known to the world. In Psalm 106.21, all throughout the Bible we have, we have stories about people talking about the mighty works of God, and they're always the saving works. Psalm 106.21, the psalmist talks about how they had forgotten their God, their Savior, who had done mighty works... In Egypt, who had done mighty works, saving them out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 11, 1 through 3, love the Lord and keep his statutes, considering the mighty works he did in Egypt. His mighty works are his saving works, which culminate in Christ dying for our sins and rising again to give us life. What Jesus did is Jesus became the Israel that they always were but shouldn't have been. That's what he did at the cross. All the failure of God's people, Jesus came to accept the punishment due to those who failed God. He became our unrighteousness so that God looked at Jesus on the cross and he punished him for all of my bad fathering, all my bad husbanding, all my covetousness, all my anger, all my lust, all my pride, and all my self-obsession. Because that's me. And I failed to be God's person. And we failed to be God's people. And God's mighty work is that He came to become the Israel that we've been and shouldn't have been. I was never who God wanted me to be. And Jesus took my sin and He bore it on the cross so I wouldn't have to. But Christ also came and He was the Israel that should have been. He was God's people that should have been. He kept the law perfectly. He served. He healed he gave himself over and over and over again. He forgave sins. He taught. He gave the world truth. 
And the Holy Spirit's job. In Acts 1.8, we're actually told what it is. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And this is what the Holy Spirit will do when He comes upon you. You'll become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is the first thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is about Jesus. What the apostles talked about with the mighty works of God, that is Jesus and His work. And J.I. Packer has this brilliant illustration of how the Holy Spirit works. He was thinking about just how to understand the role of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, I remember walking to a church one winter to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. This is Jesus saying the Holy Spirit will glorify me. And I saw the building floodlit as I turned a corner and realized this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light's coming from. What you're meant to see is the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you can see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It's the Spirit who stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always, look at Him. See His glory, listen to Him, hear His word, go to Him and have life, get to know Him, taste His gift of joy and peace. The Holy Spirit is always about Jesus. If you want to know whether or not it's the Spirit, is it confirming who Jesus is and making His name great? That's the test. Then yes, that's the Spirit. And what He's doing right here is doing what Israel never did but always should have been doing, but we needed God's Holy Spirit to come down and do, which is then making the name of Jesus go out to all the nations in every possible tongue. It's always about Jesus. Everything we do here at RUF, Lord willing is always about Jesus. And what this means is actually that there's no RUF and there's no crusade and there's no young life and there's no Midtown or First Pres or Shandon College or Navigators. There's Jesus. And Christians, a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this more so than probably anybody in the room, we present to the campus a sectarian front of disparate groups that all claim one king, but really most of what we do is kind of gripe about the inadequacies of others. When we begin to understand the Holy Spirit and Jesus works in our life, the campus will see Christ uniting. And the campus will see Christ healing. And the campus will see Christ showing mercy. And the campus will see Christ ruling as king in our lives. The campus will see Christ serving the campus will see Christ extending compassion. The campus will see Christ's words proclaimed and Scripture held up. For us to begin to get this and to, and to kind of soak it in, it just kind of makes you wonder, what if campus saw from Christians? Not a bunch of names and a bunch of groups, 
and a bunch of letters, but they just saw Christ. What the Spirit comes to do is to make Christ known through the proclamation of the good news that He's merciful and He's just and He's King. The Holy Spirit's about Christ and the Holy Spirit makes God's people go public. See, what's happening in this episode, it might call to mind a former story in Scripture. In Genesis 11, men gathered around and they decided to build a monument to their own greatness. They were going to build this great tower to show how great humanity was. It's called the Tower of Babel, if you're familiar with that episode. And God got frustrated with their vanity as they were trying to build their own little kingdom for their own little glory. And so he frustrated their building efforts in a really interesting way. He frustrated their building efforts by confusing their language. What happened was, one day they were all working on the tower and they were making progress. They went to sleep that night. They woke up the next morning and they were all speaking different languages. And so they couldn't build their own little personal kingdom to their own glory anymore. Now do you see what's happening in Pentecost? It's a reversal of Babel. God frustrated man's attempts to build his own little vain kingdom, and here he empowers man to then build God's kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and to proclaim it to all these weird places that we can't pronounce and have never been to, right? And that's just a picture of the nations, of it going everywhere. This is the gospel going everywhere. This is what this means. There's no such thing as a Christian bubble. It actually can't exist. It's not possible. If it's a bubble then it's not Christian. So there's no such thing as a Christian bubble. We don't have one. RUS is not one. Crusade is not one. Young Life. Any ministry that's doing biblical ministries, not a bubble. If you find yourself in a bubble, even though they might be talking about Bible things, it ain't Christian. If it's a safe haven that keeps you out of the world and away from the mess and away from bad people and dirty people and away from the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, then guess what? It's not Christian. It might be moral, but that doesn't mean it's Christian. Christ is always going out. The church is always going out. God's people are always going out. The Holy Spirit is here demonstrating that Christ is for the world. And the mentality that we are to be out of the world and not of it, not, excuse me. (laughs) The mentality that we're supposed to be out of the world and not of it is sub-Christian. We're to be in the world. We're to be in it and bring the proclamation by both our words and our deeds, the mighty works of God. The Holy Spirit, those are, those are simple points in the Holy Spirit. There's certainly much more. He's always about Jesus, and he's always pushing us out. The last question, then, is how do we get him? That's the big question. And before I get into how we get him, I want to address one of the false understandings of how we get him. One of the ways I think a lot of people think about how you get the Holy Spirit is we kind of co-opt this notion of Eastern mysticism and meditation um, where you empty your mind and you empty your heart. A lot of times people misunderstand Psalm 46 and they talk about being still and knowing that you are God. Um, and so it's this, this kind of empty meditative state where you just sit back, you kind of shut your mind and your heart down and you just let God do what He needs to do. And of course that's actually a deep misunderstanding of Psalm 46. If you read it, God's doing all this crazy stuff and talking about how He can like turn mountains upside down and do whatever He wants. And he's, when He says, Be still, know that I'm God, He's saying, Look at everything I'm doing 
and stand back and kind of be shocked about it and about how big I am as God. It's not a quiet moment. You're quiet because you're so shocked by his power. He's actually calling us to survey all his mighty works and be still and know that he is God. Because the spirit is not a spirit of emptiness. You don't empty your mind and hope he fills it up. You don't empty your heart. You don't empty your mentality, whatever it is, and hope he fills it up. Because the Spirit is a Spirit of truth. And when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in John 14, He says this is what the Holy Spirit will do. This is why we know it's not about emptying yourself. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things. He'll bring to you remembrance of the things Jesus said. Jesus is telling his apostles, He says, He's going to bring to your mind all that I have said. John 15, 26, When the Spirit comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, not the Spirit of emptiness, truth, truth is a full concept, truth has lots of content to it, will bear witness about me. John 16, 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He won't speak on His own authority. Whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit... Is always about Jesus. And to encounter the Spirit is to encounter truth. He fills you up. It's a content-heavy exercise. And if you want to drink, if you want to drink more deeply, if you want to understand, if you want to tap into more firmly to who the Spirit is and what He does, you have to encounter His truth. He's a person. How do you get filled with a person? It's not my me sitting across the dinner table and emptying my mind of everything, and just getting filled with thoughts of Elizabeth. No, no, no. It's Elizabeth telling me about herself. That's how I get filled with Elizabeth. That's how you get filled with your friends. That's how you get connected to people. It's content-heavy exercise. I learn more stories about Elizabeth every week. I understand her more deeply. In a right sense, I'm really filled with her more and more and more by her communicating truth to me about herself. It's a content-heavy exercise. And, you know, here's a simplistic application, but it just needs to be said. You just can't expect to have much confidence or knowledge in the Christian life if you refuse to avail yourself or if you refuse to put yourself in front of the freight train that is Scripture, that is the truth. And we're the Reformed people, and if you don't know what that means, you might be a little bit healthier than the rest of us. But we're the Reformed people, which actually what that means is we're all about grace. We're for grace. Um... And a lot of times what we do is we justify this notion of grace. We use it as a justification for being lazy, right? I don't have to read my Bible because I believe in grace. But if you understand the beauty of God's grace, then you'll long, just like when I understand Elizabeth's beauty, I want to know her more deeply. If you understand the beauty of God's grace, you'll long to drink deeply from the truth through which he communicates his grace. So there's actually no way to be all about grace and never reading your Bible. It just means you have enough theological terms to confuse a couple of people into thinking it's okay to not read your Bible, right? This is the kind of truth who sends his spirit of truth, and his truth is about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Word of God incarnate. So to encounter the spirit, to be filled with him, it's a content-heavy exercise. But Peter actually also tells us how to be filled with the Spirit at the end of the Pentecost sermon. What happens next after verse 13 is Peter preaches one of the best 
it's an amazing message. You should read it. And at the end of that sermon, he gives us a picture. He tells us kind of how to respond, what happens next. Because when you read the Pentecost episode, you're wondering, should I expect a Pentecost experience? And I don't think you should, but I want us to look at why. Because when Jesus is talking to the apostles in John 14 through 16, he promises them to send their Holy Spirit. And he promises in 1.8 to the apostles to send their Holy Spirit for this unique mission. And he's addressing a very specific group of people called the apostles. And if we had read the intervening verses between 1.8 and chapter 2, they actually talk about what makes an apostle an apostle. One of the things, the two things that make an apostle into an apostle is they walked around with Jesus for a long time and Jesus chose them to be an apostle. So if you walked around Jesus for a long time, I'm talking about earthly Jesus teaching his Bible study for three years to the apostles, small group Bible study, right? On the Old Testament, because they're in the New Testament at that point. And then Jesus appointed you. That's how you become an apostle. And when we read the, they occupy unique office and there couldn't be any more because Jesus isn't around in his bodily presence anymore. And these men were charged with a very specific mission which we participate in the fruits of, but their mission is to start the church. Now, should we expect our lives to mirror theirs? That's the question. And the answer is yes and no. It's no in this sense, in that they had been with Jesus. They had been told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for a special outpouring of the Spirit to begin the new work of proclaiming life and death and resurrection of Jesus to start the church. And we're not apostles. And what God's doing with the apostles is He's authenticating and fulfilling chapter 1, verse 8. This is the gospel of the kingdom going out into the world. This is the gospel of men who saw Jesus testifying to what they saw to the world. And what happens is, a couple other times in Acts, people speak in tongues on two other occasions. We see this kind of outpouring outpouring of the Spirit. In 1044, the apostle Peter was in Joppa, and the gospel was going to Joppa. The gospel goes to Jerusalem. We saw an outpouring of the Spirit in tongues in Judea. Joppa's in Samaria. This is the Holy Spirit breaking through one of the barriers that Jesus told it would break through in 1.8. And the apostle comes, and they don't speak in tongues. They only speak in tongues when the apostles are there. And then in Acts 19.1-6, you have people in Ephesus. And Paul comes. And actually, the people in Ephesus get converted but don't speak in tongues until an apostle shows up. When people speak in tongues, it's always with an apostle, and it's always when it breaks through an Acts 1-8 barrier, going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Ephesus is the ends of the earth. There are a lot of other occasions of people coming to saving, spirit-powered faith, and they don't speak in tongues. And in fact, I don't know if this is helpful or not, there are episodes, all, actually several episodes in Scripture where people have the gifts of the Spirit but actually aren't saved. Saul, in the Old Testament, prophesies. Balaam prophesies. They're led along by the Spirit, do these kind of miraculous, crazy talking things, but actually aren't saved. Gifts of the Spirit are actually not an indicator of salvation. What the Spirit's far more concerned with is the fruit of the Spirit. It's Christ's likeness about making Christ known through you. So in a sense, 
we shouldn't expect the Pentecost experience. But in other sense, we absolutely should because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that all God's people are of one spirit, the Holy Spirit. They drink of one spirit. Ephesians 4, 4, we are part of one body, the same spirit. In that sense, all of God's people receive the Holy Spirit. And it's the spirit of Christ that gives us life in Christ. And in that sense, we bear His fruit. But how do we get it? Paul, Peter, excuse me, Peter tells us very directly in Acts 2.37. Preaches this great sermon. Now they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And this is what Peter says. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us how to get the Holy Spirit. It's repentance and faith. It's actually repentance and baptism. The Greek word for repentance is the turning of our mind. It's turning your mind and your heart from one thing to another. And so it's a recognition of two things. That there's this thing over here that I'm connected to, I seek life from, it's my tiny little kingdom that I'm trying to scratch out my own little happiness from. And it's taking that and turning it to a second thing. And holding it out to Jesus and say, I wanted these to make me happy, but I don't think they're going to work. But can you save me? And you can. And what baptism is, Peter says, this is how you get the Holy Spirit. You repent and you be baptized. We're not going to go into the big baptism conversation, but it's simply, it's a sign of God washing you and initiating you into His people. It's a sign of entrance into His people. In the first, biggest, best evangelistic rally that ever took place where 3,000 people got converted, this is what the preacher said at the end. He said, repent, pray the prayer, and join a church. Join a church. They go hand in hand. All too often in this culture, we leave the second part of that out. And we've all seen professions of faith, maybe had your own professions of faith at events and never been connected to the body of Christ. And you wonder why those people are struggling now. Why within a few months, if not a few weeks, if not a few days, their profession kind of proved that, well, we're not really sure. If you read Acts, every time people repent and come to faith, they come into the people of God at the same time. The church is always present. We've got to have a biblical proclamation of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that includes the church, if we want to be biblical, but also if we want to be loving. This is what I want you all to see. Repentance is freedom. The Holy Spirit is freeing. That's, the power actually comes from the freedom of the gospel. He frees you from the notion that your brief moments in this life are about what you can do to make yourself happy, which in the end never makes anybody happy. And it just actually makes you bitter about how everyone else makes you unhappy. Repentance and the Spirit free us from self-obsession. Repentance sounds like one of those mean Bible words, and it's hard because it means about looking into your heart and seeing how deeply attached and obsessed you are with yourself. But it is the sweetest biblical word because it is freedom to hold that out and say, this is wasting my time. And taking it to Jesus in repentance, letting Him cover you with the Spirit and bring you into His people. 
it's so freeing to not be self-obsessed. It'll be far better than just kind of okay. I promise you this is sweet. To live into and onto and unto Christ and His kingdom. It's far sweeter. It's far more lasting. It's far more freeing. And the truth is, we all won't rest from the anxiety of trying to build our constantly crumbling hopes and dreams. And the Spirit calls you to come and rest in Jesus. And the admission price is simply this. It's all that you feel, all, all that He requires is that you feel your need of Him. There's deep power in that. Let's pray.